turn in your Bibles to Psalm 84, as we do. As, but before we read, I want to start with like a visualization exercise here for Psalm 84. So you can close your eyes if you want to. If you don't want to because you think someone, you know, because that's, that weirds you out, then don't worry about it. But I want, I want to start with a visualization here. So, so I want you to think about, picture in your mind, kind of visualize your, like the ideal way that you would want to spend a day. Like your, your perfect day, the best possible day that you can imagine. And so, you know, whatever that looks like for you, maybe it's, you know, sandy beach, you know, a little drink with an umbrella coming out of it or something. Maybe, it, maybe it's brec- people like breakfast in bed. Maybe that's like your ideal way to start a day. I'm not a fan myself. I don't, I've never understood breakfast in bed. I'd rather have breakfast at the tape. Like if I'm going to get up, I have to get up and go to the bathroom first anyway. So if I'm up, I might as well eat breakfast at a table instead of horizontally in bed. But maybe it's breakfast in bed. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's a trip somewhere. Maybe it's like seeing, maybe it's going to a museum or to a a sporting event or something. Maybe it's a a hike through the mountains, silence, solitude, nature, right? For a lot of people, the perfect day is anything, anywhere. I don't care as long as my kids are safe and happy somewhere else. Right? As long as there's someone that I know and love and trust that's watching them and they're like, as long as it's just me and, and, you know, I know my kids are happy, but, th- but someone else is watching them, that's my, my perfect day. Restaurant, right? Steak, lobster, whatever, right? Whatever it is, however you would kind of chart out your perfect day, like think about that, visualize that, because that's kind of what the psalmist is doing in Psalm 84. He's taking a minute to like consider and visualize and just think about uh, and, and spoiler alert, like the psalmist's kind of vision of his perfect day or, or what, what perfection is, is being in the presence of uh, and, and experiencing the nearness of God. That's like his, that's how he, he can't think of anything better than enjoying the glory of, of God. And so Psalm 84 is kind of a, a reflecting on how good God is and reflecting on uh, how glorious God is, how much of a privilege it is to be in the, the presence of God. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're just going to take a few moments to consider the incomparable, overwhelming, incredible glory of God, consider what a privilege it is for us as God's people to experience his, his nearness. So I'm going to read through Psalm 84, and then we'll get to work. It says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts. My King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, our God, look on the face of your anointed. For a, day in the cor- for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. 
I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask you to come here this morning and meet with us. We ask you to bless our time and your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would quiet our hearts and help us to focus on you and help us to grow in our knowledge of you and our love of you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, starting in verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Right? He's saying, he's saying, God, you are awesome. Where you dwell is awesome. Be, like being with you is awesome. You are great and, and glorious and, and big and strong and sovereign and, and beautiful. And he's kind of celebrating the presence of God, the existence of God, and, and the dwelling place of God. It's worth noting just briefly, uh, kind of taking a minute and kind of considering uh, a biblical theology of the dwelling place of, of God, right? If you, if you kind of read the Bible cover to cover, uh, you'll kind of note it like the, the dwelling place of God kind of is going to kind of morph and take different shapes depending on where you are. In, in eternity past, in eternity past, God uh, do, doesn't, God, God dwells everywhere and, and no, like in eternity past, God hasn't created anything yet. So there is no place for God to dwell. Just There is just God. God is all there is. He has yet to create any place. So there's just God. God is everything. And God is kind of in this eternal uh, existence. So God, God kind of dwells everywhere and there's nothing except God. Then God creates the world. He creates a people. He creates a garden. He puts his people in the garden and God dwells with his people in the garden uh, of Eden. After humanity sins, God, uh, you know, kicks them out of the garden. And, and, uh, you know, for a while, God will occasionally, uh, make an appearance here or there to Moses in a burning bush, or he'll speak to Noah and tell him to build an ark and things like that. But, but for a while, God, you know, it's, it's kind of ambiguous as to where exactly God is dwelling. We don't really see him on earth quite a bit until after the Exodus. Uh, God's people are wandering through the wilderness and God instructs them to build a, a tabernacle, which is actually literally the word for dwelling place. So, so God says, build a tabernacle. It's going to be where I dwell as you wander through the, the wilderness. And there's going to be all of these, you know, all of these priests and Levites who are kind of tasked with, with assembling the tabernacle when they get to a new campground and they kind of erect this big, huge tent kind of thing. And then as soon as they move, they kind of collapse it all down. In fact, the, the sons of Korah, uh, one of whom is the author of this psalm, they were responsible for kind of, uh, you know, erecting the, the tent and having the tabernacle and then kind of breaking it down and, and moving it from one place that God dwelled in his tabernacle, right? You, you live in the camp surrounding it. I live in the camp. Don't come in, or in the tabernacle. Don't come into the tabernacle in any way other than the way that I've prescribed for you uh, to, to, to come in and to offer sacrifices. Eventually, God's people stop wandering through the wilderness. They settle in Israel. They land there. They establish a kingdom and a civilization there. King David leads them into prosperity. And King Solomon is kind of the, the recipient and the beneficiary of all of this prosperity that David has, has built. And he looks around, and Sol, Solomon looks around and he feels bad. 
right? He's like, I need to build, like I'm living in a, in a big, huge, uh, awesome palace. I need to build a, a permanent uh, home for, for God, right? He has no shortage of money. So- Solomon is, uh, you know, far richer than anyone is on the, like, you know, all of the richest people on the planet today, add them all up, multiply it by 10, you're probably approaching the net worth of Solomon. So he's completely flush with cash. He builds a really big, ornate, glorious temple. And now God has a permanent dwelling place, the temple. So he's dwelt in the tabernacle, temporarily moving around. Now he dwells in the temple. Eventually that temple gets destroyed because the Babylonians come in, sack the city, take God's people into captivity. And so now the temple is kind of in ruins until it's rebuilt under uh, King Cyrus of Persia. That's called Second Temple, the Second Temple period or Second Temple Judaism. And so, so now God's, God has a, a dwelling place here on earth yet again. God's people have a place where they can come to worship him and to experience his presence. Then centuries later, Jesus is born. And now God uh, doesn't dwell in a tabernacle. God doesn't dwell in a tent. God doesn't dwell in a temple. God dwells. God dwells. He, God has entered human history. God dwells here with us as a person. Right? John says that, uh, you know, the, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It dwelt among us. Same word, dwelling place. So Jesus is, uh, you know, in Christ, God dwells with us. And then ultimately after his perfect life, sacrificial payment for sin on the cross, right? Jesus is punished in our place. He dies a sacrificial death. He's buried. He's resurrected. He ascends back to heaven. But God doesn't leave his people, right? The presence of God is not kind of taken uh, completely from his people. God promises, uh, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will come, right? So Jesus is saying, uh, you know, for a long time, God dwelled in the tabernacle or in the temple. When I was here, God himself dwelled among you in the person of Christ. And now uh, God will dwell in you through the, the Holy Spirit, and specifically in, uh, in the church, right? The, the church today is like the temple of God. It's where God dwells in humanity and how, God, how, how God's people can kind of meet and experience God. We're all, you know, 1 Corinthians, we're all baptized by one uh, spirit into one body. We dwell in Christ. Christ dwells in us. The dwelling place of God in the new covenant is the hearts of the people of God in the community of faith. And eventually, Jesus is going to come back. Jesus is going to, you know, the, the world will mount a final rebellion against Jesus. He's going to back and come back and crush his enemies. He's going to save uh, his people that he has kind of preserved up until that moment. God will rebuild this world into a beautiful Edenic garden city where he will dwell with his people and they will uh, experience his unmediated glory and presence similar to how they did uh, in the Garden of Eden before, uh, before you know, at, at the very beginning of creation. It, it, I mean, it will be similar but better, like a little bit different and better in that um, like Adam and Eve knew they, they experienced the unmediated glory of God and they were walking with God in the garden, but they knew God uh, as their creator, uh, but they didn't know God as their redeemer because they had not yet sinned and they had not yet experienced redemption from sin and God had not saved them from their sin. And so, so eternity with God in this kind of garden, city, uh, you know, eternal state will be just like the Garden of Eden, only uh, far better. And so when the psalmist is saying, how lovely is your 
dwelling place. Like that whole story is packed in to that word right there. God dwelling with his people, where God dwells, how God's people approach God, how they can experience nearness with God. That's all, all kind of packed in there. The psalmist is saying that story is lovely. It's, it's beautiful. God's dwelling place is, is lovely. And, and I long to be in it. My soul longs, it faints for the courts of the Lord. My, my heart and my flesh cry out for joy to the living God. I want to be in God's presence. I want to be near him. I, I, I want to be with God more than I want to be around anyone else or anything else, right? I love my spouse. I love my kids. I love my friends. I love my family. But, but when I am, you know, like I, more than any of that, I love God and I want to be around. When, when I'm apart from God, my heart aches and yearns to be to be with him and my soul cries out for him right this so you know if you've ever considered you know there's this there's these truths that kind of live in tension as as christians which is that uh god has called us to a life of of, a life of self-denial a life of persevering through suffering and hardship there's a lot of ways in which the christian life is hard and difficult um but but the Christian life, this psalmist understands the Christian life uh, not to be exclusively hard and difficult, but actually to be joyful. It's, it's, he understands it to be a privilege to be, to be a Christian, right? Being a Christian is something that we, that we get to do, right? You, you got kids, you load them up in the car, you take them to church, they're all complaining, they want to stay home and watch cartoons. Oh man, we have to go to church. And the psalmist is understanding that, that you know, being with the people of God and worshiping God and experiencing nearness to God is something, it's a privilege. It's something that I get to do, not something that I, that I have. Right? I, I could have easily been born into a culture where uh, no one has ever heard the gospel, where no missionaries ever came. I could very easily still be uh, in my own sin and kind of under the, the pe- penalty and the punishment of my own sin. I could be on a trajectory of spending eternity in hell apart from God, and yet Jesus has saved me. And I enjoy a relationship with him, and I'm going to experience, uh, experience his presence for all of eternity. So the first two verses are kind of just a, a declaration that God is good, God is glorious, and it's a privilege to be in his presence. But then you might think, all right, well, who gets to be in God's presence? Like, like who, you know, if God is so awesome, then it's, it's like a VIP section at a club where there's like the ropes and the bouncers and no one can get in and no one can see God and no one can, it's like only the best and the brightest and the richest and the most powerful can get access to God because he's so great and he's so glorious. There's no way that, that God would just indiscriminately let anyone and everyone into his presence. But that's, according to verse 3, it's exactly what he does. Even a sparrow finds a home with God. Even, even the swallow finds a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O God. Or at, yeah, at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. So God is big. God is great. God is awesome. God doesn't need anything from me or from anyone else. God has no reason to let anyone into his presence, save maybe the top 1% of 1% that he chooses to kind of let in. I was reading an article that says that like super wealthy guys, when they look for, for like buying a home, sometimes it's just like too taxing to, you know, if you're like super rich and famous, uh, you know, you can't just live in a regular neighborhood because you can't 
come and go from your home, you know, without people like interrupting you and asking you questions. So like super rich guys, they'll just buy an entire neighborhood of homes. They'll buy like an entire subdivision, like all hundred houses in it, and then they'll live in one. That way they can like come to to and from their home in peace without being interrupted by by people that like want to take a picture of them or something like that. So is God like that? Is God like, does he have this like exclusive, like only the best can, like only like the, the sp- small subset of people of his choosing can come near him, or is God say, anyone and everyone can come into my, my presence, right? Sparrows and swallows are not, uh, they're not, th- in the Bible, if you kind of look at sparrows and swallows, they're not seen as like um, super high value, high, like priority, like these are like, these are just seen as commonplace, borderline worthless. When Jesus talks about sparrows, he says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? So one sparrow is worth less than one penny. Uh, and not one of them is forgotten by God. Why, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. So the, the logic is that God is glorious, God's incredible, it's a privilege to be in God's presence, and yet anyone and everyone, even sparrows, can come into God's presence and can find refuge there from, from sin and from, from the, the storms of, of life. God will let anyone into his, his presence, provided that they come on his terms and not on their own. So, verses 1 and 2, God is glorious, he's, he's wonderful, his presence is glorious. Verses 3 and 4, God invites sinners and people who would otherwise have no ability to access him, he invites them into his presence so that they can enjoy him. He treats, you know, the, the, the lowest and the least valuable creatures, he treats them with care, and he loves them and provides for them and blesses them, which might, might tempt you to think in verse 5, might tempt you to think, all right, well, you know, I, you basically just told me that, like, my uncle is a, a billionaire and that he wants to give all of his money to me and that I have access to, like, all of this, like, glorious, you know, like, like, I, like at this point I can just mail it in. I, I, I don't need to, to there, I don't have much, you know, I can quit my job and enjoy myself because I have nothing that I need to, to worry about uh, anymore. But verses 5 through 7 kind of paint a picture of, not of reclining and, and, you know, just relaxing and being lazy and enjoying God's provision, but rather uh, of a journey. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, O God, right? Blessed are those whose heart, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. So it's a picture uh, of, of God's presence, but also of a, a highway going there, a journey to get there. Even as I go through the valley of, of Baca, they make it uh, a place of spring. So he's saying, right, uh, walking with Jesus is a glorious privilege, it's a glorious presence, but it is still a, a walk. It is still a journey. There is still um, an act of discipleship that I have to kind of lean into and walk through. And that path of discipleship is not always easy and pleasant uh, sometimes it's hard. The, the phrase, no, the word valley of Baca is kind of enigmatic. We're not entirely sure uh, where it is specifically, but we know what it means. The word Baca comes from the Hebrew word for weeping. So this means the valley of weeping. And a lot of scholars kind of assume based on, uh, you know, they kind of think, all right, well, this is probably some valley uh, around the city of Jerusalem, 
right? So this is probably referring to some, some valley that you had to walk through on your way to uh, the, the mountain of, and the, 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 the city of Jerusalem where the temple is, you have to walk through the valley of Baca, and it's probably dry and hot and arid and unpleasant, but just inevitable, right? You can't really get to Jerusalem without going through this unpleasant valley of Baca. And then here's the psalmist saying, when the people of God who are uh, like going through this hard, difficult journey to get to Jerusalem, when they walk through this valley of weeping, that's likely arid and dry and unpleasant, to them it feels like uh, a, a place of springs with early rain covering it with, with pools, right? So this, this arid, uh, you know, unpleasant valley is, is you know, I, I see it as a, as a watering hole or like as, as a place where I can go and be refreshed, right? He's saying that the gospel equips the people of God to persevere through suffering and hardship and difficulty but to do it with joy, to persevere through suffering and, and even uh, experience it as a privilege or as, as a blessing from, from God, right? Uh, they go from strength to strength until they appear before God in Zion. So, so what empowers, what, what uh, helps people to get through the valley of Baca, the valley of weeping, but to do so while experiencing it as, as a place of, of water and, and rain and pools is because they know that at the end of this journey, the, the celestial city that kind of exists at the end, I left the city of destruction, I'm walking to the celestial city, and God himself is waiting at the end of this, this journey, right? So, so Christians, God's people can experience suffering and count it joy because they know where they are heading and they know what they're, what they're moving toward. It reminded me of... Uh, this is years ago, I couldn't, I couldn't find the exact, maybe Eric will tell me, I couldn't find the exact um, reference. It was an interview that I saw of a golfer uh, with his caddy, and it was, so I couldn't remember who it was, but um, it was a major, and I think it was maybe like Friday or Saturday evening of a four-day, uh, you know, golf tournament, and whoever this guy was, it might have been Tiger Woods, but whoever it was, his father was his caddy for that particular uh, weekend, and he, and so he was winning, uh, after three out of the four days. And so, uh, and, and so I guess maybe ordinarily he had like a professional caddy who was younger and could kind of throw this like hundred pound golf bag on his shoulders and walk the five miles or however long this golf course was. And it's hot and it's in the middle of summer and things like that. But for whatever reason, he wanted his father to be his caddy for that weekend. And he, and he was, but his father was like older, right? He was like, you know, he wasn't a young man anymore. And so he was like, you know, like, in his 50s, maybe in his 60s, big, heavy golf bag. And, like, the golf bags they carry are not, like, the ones that, like, a regular person would have. It's, like, this big, huge thing. It's got, like, you know, I don't know what it's got in there. But, and so they're, like, they're doing, so, Eric, tell me if you remember who that is. I don't, I don't know. But, so they, um, so they go up to this guy. He's winning after Saturday, and they say, hey, like, this is your first major or whatever. Like, you're about to win the Masters or you're in the lead. This is really exciting. He's like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, trying my bet. You know, they kind of gives the classic, like, the other teams, you know, all the other guys are really good. They're giving it a, you know, I'm going to try my best. Hopefully I'll win, whatever. Just like all the cliche sports stuff. And then they put the microphone on the dad and they're like, bro, how are you doing, man? This is, this has been a long weekend for you so far. And, you know, uh, yeah, how are you? Like, I imagine the golf bag is getting heavier each day and the course feels longer each day and the temperature feels hotter each day. Do you think that you'll be able to make it tomorrow? And he was like, 
he like looked over at his son and he like you could like see how proud he was of his son for like winning this tournament or at least like making it through this tournament and he said uh he said i my feet won't even touch the ground tomorrow and that like always stuck with me right like i you know i don't care how heavy this bag is i don't care how long the the course is you know I don't care how difficult the conditions are. Like, this is such an exciting moment for my son and for me to be a part of it. I won't even feel it at all, right? I will, you know, I'll be like on cloud nine walking around tomorrow with my, uh, with my son, right? Like, I'm so excited for the prospect of him winning this tournament and celebrating with him that anything that I have to walk through to get there is, is like nothing to me at all. That's what the psalmist is saying. Like, being in the presence of God, experiencing the glory of God, right? Appearing before God in Zion is so good, so glorious, so beautiful that, that anything I have to walk through to get there, I won't even, I won't even feel it at all. I won't even experience it at, at all. Verse 8. He says, this is, this is kind of how, this is the posture that I will adopt as I'm walking through. As I'm walking through the valley of Baca, the valley of weeping, as I'm persevering to get to the presence of God, I'm going to maintain a posture of continually praying to God and looking to God. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, right? I recognize, God, that I need you. I need your presence. I need your grace to get me through this journey that I am on. Behold our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed. If you you read Psalm 89, you can kind of get some interpretive insight into what this means. The shield, God's people understood their shield to be their, their king. The face of their anointed is the king, the one that God has anointed to be their king and to rule over them and to to help them defend themselves from the nations that want to take advantage of them and want to to hurt them. So so verses 8 and 9, the psalmist is saying, one, God, I need you. I need your grace. I'm praying to you and I need you to hear my prayer. But then his, his prayer is that he's praying for their king. And he's praying that God would bless their king and equip their king and strengthen their king so that their king can operate as, can function as their, their shield and their protector. Right? The psalmist is, is kind of living out what Paul instructs us to do in 1 Timothy 2. Right? I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, but especially for kings and all who are in high positions so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Christians are called to pray for their leaders, called to pray for their bosses, called to pray for the, the people that are in governing authority, presidents, governors, you know, mayors, right? People that are in authority over you have a difficult job, right? Maybe they do it well, maybe they do it poorly. Imagine that most of us probably feel they do it poorly. Most of us probably think we could do it better than they could. Maybe you could, I don't know. But the bottom line is it's hard. Being in authority is hard, and God says pray for people who are in authority because it's a difficult, right? Regardless of whether you support Donald Trump or not, pray for him. God has commanded you to pray for him and intercede for him and ask God to be merciful to him. I mean, whoever's the president next year, if it's Trump or if it's Biden, whoever it is, whether you support him or not, whether you voted for him or not, pray for them. Pray that God would be merciful to them. Pray that that God would would provide for them and, and equip them and help them. 
right? Regardless of whether you support the governor or not and, and you know, uh, protocols that he put, puts in place around COVID-19, pray for the governor. Pray that God would bless him. Pray that God would give him wisdom. Pray that God would be merciful to him, right? In seasons like this, right now, is, is a very unique opportunity for us as Christians to live out the, the gospel and to, to, to be different. Like the world says, you know, your first loyalty should be your political party. It should be your political candidate. It should be your political cause. It should be your political preferences. And the Bible says God should be your first priority. You should love Jesus more than you love your political candidate. You should love God more than you love your political party. Whether you agree with or disagree with that who's in authority, you should, you should love them. You should pray for them. This right now, I mean, probably more than any season of my life, this is an opportunity for Christians to stand out and say, I strongly uh, agree with this uh, you know, aspect of government, or I strongly disagree with this one, and yet I'm going to pray for, for the government and pray for those who are in authority, regardless of whether I agree or disagree with them. So verses 1 and 2, God is lovely and glorious. Verses 3 and 4, God invites people into his presence to experience his glory. Verses 5 through 7, right, walking with God is a journey. You have, to, you have to walk in this path of costly discipleship, even when it's hard, even when it's difficult. Verses 8 through 9, uh, pray, cry out to God for mercy and for grace, and pray for yourself, but also pray for your leaders that God has put in place over you. In verse 10, we read, for one day in your courts is better than a thousand days spent elsewhere. Right? God, God is that good. God is that awesome. God is that beautiful. Being around God is that wonderful that I would rather be with God for just a moment, for just a day, than I would be to spend years and years, decades uh, elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God, then I would dwell in the tents of wickedness, right? So I'd rather be a servant or, or a slave in the kingdom of God than, than to be the king ruling over my own kingdom out in the, in the world. Again, this, this psalm was written by one of the sons of Korah. And so he would have been well familiar. Like, one of the jobs of the sons of Korah was to be a doorkeeper in the house of God. And it was to pick up these, you know, these... Uh, like all of the parts of the big tabernacle tent and carry it around in the wilderness. And it was hard work and it was, you know, servitude. And he says, I'd rather be a servant in God's kingdom than to be a king of my own kingdom. Which, which kind of is convicting, right? It, it raises the question of whether we really believe that. Would we rather be a humble, forgotten, unnamed servant in the kingdom of God or would we rather have everything that the world has to offer, right? right the, the, the finest uh, things that the world could throw our way and to dwell in just the, the tents of nobility and the tents of uh, you know, royalty in, in the world. God says it's better to know him and serve him than to be the king, than to be the president, right? Than to be you know, someone who is, is highly revered, someone who's rich and famous, in the world. If you really believe that Psalm 84 is true, then it means that it means that God is better than the world, right? And that should inform how we 
interact with the world. That should inform how we interact with our respective besetting sins, right? right? Next time you're about to lose your temper, your spouse or your kids, right? Whatever it is that you want, right? I just want five minutes of peace and quiet, or I just want you to do your chores, or I just want you to pick up your toys, or, or whatever it is, right? right? It, it, this is, Psalm 84 is an opportunity for us to think, what is better? What do I want more? Ultimately, what is more enjoyable, knowing God or getting this thing, this idol that I want so badly that it's causing me to lose my temper and get upset? Next time you're tempted to indulge in sin, drink too much, Look at something inappropriate, gossip, slander, take revenge, be defensive and, and you know, self-righteous, right? Next time you're, you have an opportunity to indulge in sin, stop and think, what is better? To, to know God and to experience the glorious presence of God or to indulge in this particular sin? If Psalm 84 is right, then it's better to know God than it is to indulge in sin. It's better to choose God over sin. Choosing God over sin is not choosing duty uh, over pleasure, right? It's not, it's not choosing a life that is void of joy. Choosing God over sin is actually choosing that which is most enjoyable. Choosing that which, which on an eternal timeline is, the, it's, it's acting in, in maximum self-interest, if you were, right? Knowing God, walking with God, experiencing presence is the most joy that you could possibly uh, experience. 11, for the, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. Listen to this. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God does not, God will not ever withhold any good thing from his children who are walking with them. God, God loves to give good gifts to his children. He delights in giving good gifts to his children. He does it gladly and consistently, which means if there's something that you desire, right, you can, you can trust God, you can pray for it, you can ask God for it and trust that God will give it to you, or at the very least, trust that God will give you what is best for you. You can trust God to direct your life. You can trust that when God gives you something, it is for your good. When he does not give you something, it is because it is not for your good, or at least it's not for your good at that precise moment, because, right? Because God knows better than you. God uh, knows what is good for you. This verse was actually really, um, was, was kind of a pivotal moment for me personally. I'm, I'm probably in pastoral ministry uh, for any number of reasons, one of which is, is, is reading and meditating and kind of, uh, you know, considering this verse. Before I, before I ever moved here, before I ever met Jerry and had Baxter, I was um, years ago engaged to another girl when I lived in, in Louisville. And so we were moving toward marriage, and I was really excited to marry this girl. And I was excited, excited about the prospect of being a husband and, and father, and she broke up with me. Right, a couple months before the wedding, she broke up with me, called it off, canceled all the wedding plans. She proceeded to leave the country, and I've never, I haven't talked to her since. And it was, it was brutal. I was, you know, devastated. I don't know if I was depressed, but I, that was as close to depression, I think, as, I, as I've experienced personally, was this kind of the aftermath of this breakup living in Louisville years ago. And I remember 
just trying to kind of make sense of things. And I sat down and was reading this psalm and read this verse and was really struggling with it because I was struggling to believe it. Because, you know, I would flip over to Proverbs 18 and read that uh, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And so here's this, this woman that I know to be a godly woman that I'm excited about being married to and I'm excited about being in a relationship with. And for, for whatever reason, God has decided to withhold this good thing from me. As so I was having difficulty reconciling this verse with, with other verses elsewhere, and I, I didn't know how to move forward. And I got, out a, I got out a piece of paper and I kind of, I said, all right, well, one of three things is true here in this scenario. I have, to, I have to figure out which of these three things is true because it's going to inform how I, how I relate to God from this point forward in my life. All right, one is being married to this woman is a good thing, it's the best thing, and God has failed to give it to me. Right? God wanted us to get married, but God failed to accomplish it. He couldn't see his plan, his will through to the finish line. He failed, and he is, he is impotent to bring about his will. That was like option one on my piece of notebook paper. Option two was uh, being married to this woman is a good thing. It's the best thing, and God could have done it, but he didn't. And God is purposefully withholding good things from me because he is malevolent and he, you know, is, is enjoying my suffering at this, at this moment. And I, you know, I kind of, as, as I was writing this down and trying to process it, I kind of thought, all right, well, if either one of those two is true, I don't think that I can be a pastor. I don't even think that I can be a Christian. Like, I think if either one of those two is true, I'm walking away from the faith right now, right? A God who is not sovereign and able to accomplish what he thinks is good or a God who is not good and who wants to give good gifts to his children is not a God that I want to serve. It's not a God that I want anything to do with. And I thought, right, because I, I was so utterly convinced that like being married to this woman was the best thing for me, I thought for a moment about punting the faith and walking away. But option three, I wrote it down. Option three, you know, I'm thinking, all right, well, there's got to be, like, if I, want to rem- if I want to persevere as a believer, there has to be something else. And it was that being married to this woman was not God's best for me. And being married to me was not God's best for her. She's a great woman. She will make a great wife for someone else. And, and I aspire to be a godly man and a husband and a father, and I will be, Lord willing, with someone else. And so I thought, well, maybe being married to this woman is not a good thing that God has failed to give me or a good thing that God is withholding from me. Maybe being married to this woman uh, because of our respective personalities and compatibility or whatever is, is something that would be difficult and hard and painful, and God is graciously sparing me from it, so that we can both go meet and marry our future spouses that he has intended for us. That was really hard. It was really hard to, to land on that option and say, God, I, because everything in me, all of the feelings, all of the emotions, all of, every, all of my insight and my perspective says this was the best thing. 
And ultimately, it was just, I had to say, all right, well, either, either I trust God or I trust myself. If I trust myself, then God is not worth following. God is not worth submitting to. If God is, is impotent or malevolent, then, then God is not, if God, if, if either one of those, right, if that's the case with you with anything in your life, if there's something in your life that God has withheld or is withholding and you're convinced that it's good and you're convinced that God either cannot give you what he wants to give you or that God will not give you something that he knows is good for you, if that's true, then, then you're in the same position that I was then and you should probably not follow God. Right. Don't come back. If, if that's the, if, if God is withhold, if, if you are convinced that something that you want, that God is withholding, if you, if you think that you know better than God and God is either unwilling or unable to do, to, to treat, to, to fulfill verse 11, then you don't need to waste your time in church. If God withholds good things from his people or if God is unable to accomplish his, his will. But, if you believe that God is sovereign, if you believe that God is good, that means that you believe that God knows what is best. God knows what is best for you. He knows what's best for your life. He knows what's best for your family. He knows what's best for your finances. He knows what's best for your career. He knows what's best for your relationships. And if that's true, then trust him. Trust God and follow him with everything that you have got, right? Trust that knowing God and enjoying God is better than anything that the world has to offer. Trust that when God does something, it is for your good because he loves you. Trust God and obey God and walk with God and, and live with God. If God is God, then you owe him your life and you owe him everything. If God is not God, then stop playing around and pretending to follow him. But if God is God, then you owe him everything. Verse 12, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So it kind of comes full circle and ends with uh, probably as close, uh, uh, as close of an explicit gospel message that we'll see in the, in the Old Testament. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, right? Blessed is the, blessed is the one who does not trust in themselves and their accomplishments, but instead trusts in God, trusts in the person and work of Jesus. Blessed is the one who trusts in the sufficiency of the death of Christ on the cross. Blessed is the one who trusts that the full penalty for sin was paid on their behalf. Blessed is the one who trusts that the wrath of God was satisfied. Blessed is the one who trusts that Jesus was resurrected in victory over Satan and sin and death. Blessed is the one who trusts that their sin was imputed to Jesus and the righteousness of Christ was imputed to them. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord to save them from their sins. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. Psalm 84 is, is a picture of the goodness, the incomparable glory of God, the privilege that it is to be in God's presence and it is, uh, it is an exhortation to walk with God through suffering, trust in him, hope in him, love him more than you love anything else in the world, trusting that God will take care of you. God will give you every good thing. And blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. Let's pray together. 
Father in heaven, we, we trust you, Lord. We come together collectively and communally this morning, and we trust in you. We trust that you are lovely, that your presence is great and awesome. And even, Lord, as we journey through this life, we look to you. We acknowledge, Lord, that you are better than anything else, than anyone else. We acknowledge that your presence is better than anything else or anyone else. And we pray, Lord, we ask you to help us to trust you and to obey you so that we might experience your nearness. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.